Welcome to Island Baptist Church's Bible study in the parables of Luke, Lesson 4. Because I was raised in church and because I, I got a really good education in the church I grew up in, and from, both from my church and from my parents, and then also had great mentors, um, seminary and otherwise, I, um, I tend to major on the things that aren't necessarily typical Sunday school lessons. Sort of my, sort of my bent, because that's the stuff that we've all heard, I've heard, you know, kind of thing. So I sort of go, you know, not, not trying to come, I don't try to come up with stuff, I just try to, try to hit stuff that nobody else is hitting. And this coming Sunday is going to be one of those things, and you may say, well, that was last Sunday too, and the previous Sunday, well, and that's, and that's great if it is. And if you've heard it all before, then that's awesome too, because it's still good stuff. But this Sunday we're going to be looking at uh, the genealogies of Jesus. There's two of them. Uh, one's in the book of Luke, one's in the book of Matthew. I don't know if you've ever tried to sit down and read them because there's a bunch of names you can't pronounce. Uh, they're very different. So which one is the genealogy of Jesus, you know? Uh, well, both of them are, actually. Um, and they have differences, and the differences are amazing. And in fact, the one that's in the book of Matthew has some characteristics, some semantic characteristics that are just mind-blowing. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14 this morning, and we're going to be looking at a parable that I told you two weeks ago we are going to be looking at a week ago. Now, the parable of the, of the dinner or the celebration or of the supper or the however you, lots of different ways to title it. Luke chapter 14, and it's going to be down in verse uh, 16 and following, but we're going to be backing up and, and looking at the entire chapter because, again, context matters, and, and context is not just... Uh, uh, cultural context is important, but also where it falls in the scriptures is important. We need to hear kind of what led into it, and we have a tendency to exert these things and pull them out and start considering as sort of by themselves. And that is, um, and not to say that any scripture doesn't stand alone, but but we tend to um, you come up with some bad interpretations, or at the very least, you come up with a limited interpretation. And I think more than anything, if we've discovered anything, and we've discovered that we've been limited in our, in our studies of the parables, sort of limited in our interpretation because either our culture or because of our, uh, our tendency to pull things out. Uh, and so it sort of it limits us. We sort of don't get the full orb view of what everything that, that was being said at that time. And, and, and again, our, part of our context is if it doesn't make sense, if it didn't make sense to the hearers of that time, it, or our interpretation doesn't make sense, then probably we're not correct. Uh, it was told in a cultural setting uh, by, a, by a particular person, and he would have, he's kind of moving through stories and issues because there were many things assumed here uh, that would have, he would have not had to go into detail like I'm having to go into detail because he's a Middle Eastern person living in the first century, speaking to Middle Eastern people who were also living in the first century, and so certain things and stories like where you're from you can tell certain stories and there's just a you know you had you know you kind of had to be there or be a part of the joke or whatever but the people that were where you're from oh everybody knows what you're talking about well um some some of the scriptures especially these stories of jesus kind of fall into that same kind of category you kind of had to be there so we got to go back and get in there and we're going to do that. So Luke 14, we're going to be down in verses, we're going to be verse 1 in a minute, we're going to be down in verse 16 and following in a bit. So let's pray. God, we're grateful for another day and for the hope that we have in your son Jesus who alone is our mediator who stands forever 
to save to the uttermost those who've come to God through him. And we're trusting him. We're trusting his works. We're not trusting anything that we've done. We're not trusting how religious we are, the fact that we got up early on a Tuesday morning, or that we own a Bible, or that we've been praying, or any of these things. Lord, we're trusting the work of Christ on the cross. Could any of those things save us? Then Christ would have died for no reason, but he had to die in order to save us. And this was not something we asked for. It was something that you did. It's something that you planned from all eternity. Knowing the kind of sinners that we would be, you planned the kind of rescue, uh, the only rescue, that would pull us out. And he is the way and the truth and the life. And we're placing our faith in him today. We're replacing our, our trust in his spirit to direct us. And we're asking God you to preside over all these things, Lord. And we thank you for a good winter you've given us here and the time we've had to study together. And we just ask God for your indwelling spirit uh, to overshadow us here in our, in our time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so Jesus told a lot of all kinds of stories, and there's no indication that he ever told a joke. Uh, I don't think he was without uh, humor, for sure. But I, I would suggest to you the story we're going to read today would have been originally taken as a joke. They would have said, surely you're joking. And you may say, well, that could be true about these other ones, because they were such a, uh, they are so hyperbolic in the sense they're so, they're so uh, far-fetched as far as the way they would have understood things would have been expected to happen in this culture, like a boy asking for his inheritance before his dad died. That just didn't happen, and that the father would give it to him. And then, and then when he did, and he went and squandered all that the father would accept him back. I mean, that was just, like I said, it's com- complete hyperbole. Complete. But he's using these stories, and they are contrived stories, to, to, to make an exaggerated point because they're, the, the people were living in an exaggerated situation and not even knowing it. So they were headed straight to hell and thinking they were going to heaven, and that's ex- definitely exaggerated. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing to be headed to hell and to think you're going to heaven. It's another thing to, you know, you're headed to hell and you, you know, pretty, like I, I talked to a guy and I, about his salvation. He was near death, and, and I wanted to know what he thought about his, you know, circumstances, and he said, I, yeah, I think I'm pretty, pretty much headed to hell. Honestly, refreshing. It's unusual. The typical person you ask here in the United States, they think they're going to heaven. They really do. And are they all going to heaven? Unfortunately not, I don't think. But I hope so, but I don't think. So initially this would have been taken as a joke. So let's read it here, and then we're going to back up and consider the context. Verse 16. But he said to him, and who is him? We're going to get to that in a bit. A certain man was giving a big dinner. This is classic parabolic language. A certain man, there's no name, there's no place, there's no titles, just generalities. And this is the classic uh, parable type of uh, uh, um, genre here. At the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. This is a typical situation they would have been all familiar with. They would have been rolling with this this kind of thing. It would have been common in their culture. But they all alike began to make excuses. This is where they get off the boat. This would have not happened. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Sounds reasonable to us. It would have not been to them. Another one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Sounds reasonable to us. It would have not been. This is absurd. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. Again, it's absurd. It's totally absurd. We'll see why. 
And a slave came back and reported this to the master, and then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out once at once into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what, what you have commanded has been done, still there is room. So it tells you how big this feast was. There was way more poor people than there were rich people, but he filled his house with every last one of the poor in the city, and yet there was still a massive amount of room. So the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways, and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. It's sort of a finality. And you find this kind of language throughout the scriptures. And uh, there is no indication given anywhere in the Bible that having refused God's invitation that you ever get a second chance. And I don't mean, obviously, in this life, so I'm walking in this life and somebody witnessed to me and I didn't accept Christ. Is there a second chance for that person? If they're breathing. But if he passes away in that condition, uh-uh. Nope. You get one shot, it's called your life, and if you miss that shot, that's forever. You've signed your, your forever ticket. And that's what, you, that's what this life is. This life among, if can be simplified just simply in determining where you're headed for the forever part of your life. This is a temporary part, this is just a small, tiny part. And the forever part of your life is being determined by the decisions you make here. So, so again, absurdity in, in the sense that they wouldn't have come, this would have been totally absurd to them, it's completely uh, uh, a, uh, something that wouldn't have happened in this culture. Uh, adding to the absurdity and compounding it probably exponentially is the fact that this guy, having not had anybody to fill his house, would have gone to the poor. Just didn't happen. They had a very strong, very powerful caste system. You didn't cross those lines. And in addition, that he would have gone out past the poor into the hedges and highways, which refers to the Gentiles. Jews did not eat with Gentiles. Completely, exponentially absurd story. He really had their attention. What a master storyteller Jesus was when he walked this earth. And so, so the buildup of the parable, though, is what takes place prior to this. And I want us to consider... Uh, these things. Go back to, to, we're in chapter 14, just go back to verse 1. It says, and it came about when he, speaking of Jesus, went into the house of one of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were all watching him closely. And there was in front of him a certain man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered the lawyers and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Are you familiar with this story? They, they, they've invited him over. We, they, had sun, they had Sabbath meals like you have Sunday meals. Sunday after church, everybody comes over, family meets together. I know I did, my family did. Uh, they would have it on the Sabbath. They would go to synagogue in the morning, and then on, at noon they would all go over to someone's house, some prominent member in the community, like a Pharisee, and they would eat. It would be a classic meal that would happen every single week. Uh, this is what's happening here. Jesus is at this person's house, and they happen to bring in, and it was all arranged ahead of time, this guy who has got this dropsy, this illness, and expecting that Jesus is going to heal him, which of course he does on the Sabbath, but he lays out some things that they would definitely do for love or for money on a Sabbath day and that none of them thought was wrong. And he lays out their hypocrisy, and of course they have nothing to say about it. So that's the initial beginning of this, and then it goes on here, if you look down at verse 13. He goes on to a situation, he breaks into a story basically just teaching them, and saying, uh, you see these people that you invited here? Don't invite these kind of people ever again. Imagine how that would be a little uncomfortable. And, um, Jesus didn't mind put them in an uncomfortable position. But verse 12, actually. 
when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends. Really? Or your brothers or your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and return in repayment. That's kind of this part, part, of, part and parcel of this story and the reason why the absurdities of what's happening here, in particular the people that come later, is because there was this reciprocity yeah, deal. I invite you over, and not likely, I'm going to try to say it again later, and I'll have to probably have help again. So just, you know, be ready. There was this deal that you would always reciprocate. I mean, it was just expected. And it, was, it, was, it was hard and fast. I mean, it wasn't like, in, in our culture, I mean, obviously, uh, you go out and eat, and um, it's a nice thing to invite uh, the people back, but, you know, we, at least I don't go expecting to be invited back. Uh, I know moving to South Texas here, and South Texas culture, of course, is very similar to Mexico culture. Um, and uh, we brought some food to a, to a relative or to a, to a neighbor that lived behind us across the alley. And um, a month went by, and she hadn't brought that bowl back and, or something like that. It had been a while, though. And my wife just asked her about, hey, you know, whenever you get a chance to get that, oh, I can't bring it back. Just like, what do you mean <laughs> you can't bring it back? I mean, like, there's an alley between us. So you can. It's, she can't bring it back until she had something to put in it. She couldn't in her culture. It was just wrong. And all at, at the same time, do we appreciate that? Certainly, but, you know, that's not why we did it. We didn't do it to get something back. We just did it because we cared. We want to be a nice neighbor. So, it, but, but again, the cultural norms were very powerful, very strong in this culture, it, the more classic culture, uh, Hispanic, Mexican culture. And they were the same in this culture. So this reciprocity, got it held pretty strong. Verse 13, when you give this reception, though, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, people that can't, can never pay you back. And you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, there's, a, there's a concept right there. So God's going to pay us back for stuff we did in this life, even though we're Christians and heaven isn't a payment. It's something that Jesus earned. It's not something we earned. Yeah, there's also an addition. There is a payment called rewards, and there's a sermon series I did way back there. Maybe I should stir it up again because it's such a, such a foreign thing to us. Jesus constantly teaches us, though. So, but it says, and, and when, when one of those who had reclined at the table heard him say this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who shall eat at the bread of the kingdom. So he sort of diverts the story uh, to something that everybody would have said, here, here, I'll drink to that, you know, blessed is everyone who's going to be in the kingdom. And so he sort of diverts this story, sort of the, the cutting the thick air of Jesus sort of saying you shouldn't invite these people anymore, uh, invite unlikely people. And uh, this, you know, again, a scenario of, of, the, of the feast of the kingdom is something that's prolific in the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Isaiah 25, 6, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, that would be uh, Mount Zion, a banquet of aged wine and choice pieces with marrow and refined, and, and again, aged wine. It says there, of course, we're familiar with the wedding supper of the Lamb and the great feast that's coming. And like I said, this is a, this is a, a theme that's all the way through the Scriptures. And so, so they, the reason why this guy says what he says there in verse 15 is because of teachings like this. Blessed are those who are going to be there. Of course, when he says that, what is assumed in that statement? that he's going to be there. He doesn't say, I wish I could go. 
He just says, you know, it's an assumption. He's just making a broad generalization and saying, I'm going and so is everybody sitting here because we're all awesome people because you say that I'm awesome and I say that you're awesome and then circular reasoning, right? And then we all agree that I'm awesome and then all these people agree that you're awesome and that we all say, and we all go before God and say, because we all agree that we're awesome, God, you should let us in. And that was basically their religion. That is their whole religion right there. The whole thing. The Jews, listen, endured endless rituals of legalism and it went all the way down to the most minute aspects of hand washing. I rode on a plane with uh, a rabbi one year headed to Israel and he was a young guy in his 30s, maybe 30, 33, wasn't even married. And um, we had conversations about the Bible and Jesus and stuff. And I noticed when you know, they pass out your meal, they bring you this little tray and it's got a little plastic wrap on the top of it. You gotta break this plastic wrap. And he asked for a second cup. And he asked for more water. You usually get this little, you know, little plastic cup with a handle and it's something to put coffee in, which is not enough. I mean, I need a cup of like a that big, but <laughs> this tiny little cup, and you got to ask to get it refilled 37 times. This tiny little cup, and, and he asked for a bottle of water and he wanted a second cup. And I thought, I'm just kind of, you know, he's sitting right next to me. So I'm just watching him. And he pours water into the one cup and holds his hand under above the second one and pours the water from this cup and this one. And then he sets this cup down and picks the cup up that he poured water into through his fingers and he pours it over this second one and then he kind of, and he closes his eyes and kind of mumbles something, I don't know what he said, Yiddish or something, I don't know. Ritual hand washing is what he was doing. You go to Israel, you'll see that, especially around the temple and stuff. Um, these guys have all kinds of rituals that they do. Back then, it's true today. Uh, why would they put up with such burdens, such uh, tight restrictions? Here's why. They believed, still do, that it's saving them. If, don't you want to go to heaven? So if you believed it's saving you, wouldn't you do it? This is the explanation for their religion, and by the way, all religions. Why do people do it? Why do they strap bombs to their kids and blow them up in a, in a bunch of Israelis, is the uh, jihadists? They believe that's an instant ticket to heaven for their boy. And apparently they believe it with their whole heart. They love their kids. It's not that they don't love them. They love them enough to send them to heaven just like that as far as they're concerned. Of course, you know, sincerity doesn't mean anything. It, it just you can be sincerely wrong. Um, they, the, the more rules they kept, the more they deprived themselves, the Jews and any religion for that matter, the more assured they were of this resurrection from the dead and they kept adding more and more and uh, again, this is more or less how all religions work. Uh, why do people put up with all the rituals and rules, the do's and don'ts? Because they believe they are achieving eternal life. It's true, it's a, it's a blanket statement you can say over all religion, with the exception of Christianity. There's, there, and I should say, there's a lot of fake Christianity that goes on out there that's, that has these rules, and that somehow we believe we follow these rules, that's how we go to heaven. That is fake Christianity, it's not what Jesus teaches, it's not what the Bible teaches at all. Bible teaches that there are works that save you, but it's not yours. They are the works of Christ. And he performed those works on the cross by dying and paying for your sins and resurrecting to prove that your sins had been paid for. You're either trusting, listen, this is absolutely incredibly important because we have a lot of Christians supposedly out there who don't know this or don't believe it. You're either trusting your works or you're trusting God's works. The classic Bill, Bill uh, can't remember the guy's name. He's passed away now. He used to be head of uh, 
uh, Campus Crusade. But the classic question he would ask is, when you stand before God one of these days and he says, why should I let you into my heaven, what is your answer going to be? That will tell you whether you're a religious person or you're actually a Christian. If you start spouting out the fact that you've been come to church and, and you sit and listen to Pastor Bill and you never went to sleep, and the fact that you own a Bible, and it, you know, what you're, telling, what you're telling me and you're telling God is, is that I have good works, that's why I should be let in. And no one will go into heaven based upon good works. There's not a work you can perform to undo the fact that you are a sinner. And see, this is the issue we have to, we have to, we have to grasp. Sin is an eternal problem. It carries with it, with it internal consequences. The laws of God are eternal laws, are they not? They're not going to cease after we're dead. It's not going to be, okay, now that we're in heaven, you can kill anybody you want. Those laws for just for earth, adultery anywhere you want, steal anything. Is that right? No. These are eternal laws. This is it, breaking the laws of God, you're not just breaking some arbitrary rules that are outside the nature of who God is. These are actually against the very nature of God. Because God's not like that. God is not adulterous in nature. He's not stealing in nature. He's not murderous in nature. He's not dishonoring in nature. He's not idolatrous in nature. None of those things. So, so to break those rules is to go against the very nature of who God is. So they are, because God is eternal, they are also eternal. So when you break those laws, they're eternal laws, they carry eternal consequences. That's why hell is an eternal place. No such thing as purgatory. No such thing. It's an eternal place. I'm not saying we don't sin, and, uh, but there's only, there's only one solution for an eternal problem as sin. And that's for an eternal person like Jesus to die and take your place, which in fact he has done. So you cease to trust anything, because see, there's nothing I can do, because you're talking about a statute of limitations, right? There's statute of limitations on, in, our, in our laws world uh, on, um, on certain crimes, and then there's other, other crimes like rape and murder that have no statute of limitations. In other words, if we catch you 30 years later, you're still going to go to jail for them. Well, there's no statute of limitations on eternal laws, that make sense? Because they are eternal, they're not temporary. So thus, statute of limitations is, yeah, eternity. As soon as you've been in hell for eternity, I guess you can get out. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make any sense. There's no statute of limitations on them. Uh, so, so if you committed even one sin, even one, you are a sinner bound for hell and in need of a Savior. And you cannot undo that no matter how many good things that you do. So, you know, we've told this story before, but it, it just, it's just, uh, I think it's, it's important. So let's say there's no statute of limitations on murder, and I kill, um, who should I kill? I wouldn't kill Gail, I'd kill Gary. He's got it coming to him. Some people just need shooting, so. And you all see it happen. In fact, I've told most of you that I, me and Gary, you know, it's either him or me. And so bang, 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 I kill him, and Gail gets his million, two, three hundred million dollars worth of insurance you can thank me later, Gil. <laughs> it goes on this whirlwind tour all over the world now. And uh, so, you know, I'm thrown in jail and I'm, I'm put on trial on a quarter of my peers down here in Cameron County as it, as it ought to be. And you've got, you know, got 30, 40 witnesses and, that I've either told or that actually saw me do it. You've got the smoking gun. We've got everything. We, and, and here I am on trial. And of course, it's, it's due process, but it's a done, I mean, it's closed, open and shut case. And, and then, you know, it's, it takes very, very little time for the jury to deliberate, and sure enough, I'm found guilty, and the judge, you know, asked me if I have anything to say for myself before he passes the sentence. And I say, yes, judge, I think 
I, I will admit that I did kill Gary because I think he had it coming to him. But if you will look at my record, I've been a good boy. I've been a pastor of a church. I have helped people come to Christ. I've given money to different things. I've served. I've traveled on mission trips. I've helped little ladies across the street. I've done things when no one else is watching. I've been good to my wife. I raised good kids. Da 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 da. I think for those reasons, they ought to cancel out the fact that I killed, that I shot Gary in cold blood. What's he going to say? So, murderers still deserve. To be judged. And by the way, if he doesn't judge me, if, if he does say, oh, well, you have been a good a boy, we're going to just cancel out this murder, what does that make him? It makes an accomplice to my crime. He's not going to do that. Likewise, you expect you're going to stand before God and say, because I've been a good person, my good deeds should outweigh my bad deeds, and God's going to say, you want me to be accomplice to the, crime, the eternal crimes that you committed? No. No, hell is a place for those who break eternal, who, who break eternal laws. Um, we got to understand that. And that is something this culture did not understand. And that's why they hated Jesus, because he brought him that message, and he brought it very clearly. And this story is all about that. Jesus immediately corrects their position. Like I said, this guy says, blessed is everybody's going to be in the banquet, right? And of course, he's assuming I'm going to be there, and all these great guys are going to be there. And and remember how they were seated, it's all men at one table, and they've, they've, they've been jockeying for positions. And so what would happen was you show up at the house, and it's Sabbath, and, and uh, ladies are back there cooking, and, and of course when it's ready, it's ready. So when they ring the dinner bell, the table is set up. You know, you've got the head of the table, whosoever house this is, to his right is the most important person. And so as soon as they ring the dinner bell, it's like musical chairs. Everybody starts running for the, I, I really think I, I can sit at number five this time. I've been a good boy. And Jesus says, don't do that. Go, go pick the, the place that's always going to be open, which is the last place at the table. Because what that means is for sure, at least you've got a place to sit. You're going to get to eat. But, but probably some guy in this group got his position wrong and what they're going to do with him, no matter where he is, is they're going to bump him to the very last position, and you're going to get to move up. He's going to look really bad, and you're going to look pretty good. He says, if you're really into, into looking good, here's how you do it. So, all that is background. But these guys were misguided, had the misguided assumption that, um, that they were going to go to heaven because of all these deeds that they did, and Jesus shatters that false hope with this parable. So let's get to the invitation again. Here's some cultural things that we wouldn't have understood, not having not been first century Jews, that they would have, they would have understood. In fact, it would have been uh, very, very, under, very clear to them. Jesus doesn't go into an explanation because, like I said, he's a first century Jew speaking to first century Jews. They would have easily identified with every aspect of this story up until a certain point. Uh, for instance, uh, the invitation part. Uh, in, in these big meals, and it doesn't say what the big meal is, so let's just say it's not a wedding, it's most likely like a bar mitzvah or something like that. So it's a, it's a big time, it's scheduled, uh, it's, it's set out, you would have gotten invitation, the invitation would have come in two courses. Invitation number one would have come months in advance, and I would have sent my servants out to each one of your houses and would have said, listen, you're invited to come to my son's bar mitzvah, it's going to happen sometime in the spring. Of course, your first answer question is, what? When? That's because you don't live in the Middle East in the first century. They would have never asked that question. Because there is, no, there is a when, but they won't know when until it's when. 
See, for you, you've got Google Calendar, I've got Apple Phone Calendar, I got, a, I got stuff I'm doing, I may be out of the country, I could be there, I could be this, it could be certain things. I got a schedule, I have a little girl I'm supposed to be marrying this coming fall, she's a friend of my, my uh, daughter's and uh, she's bumping her wedding back from, had it set and it was good to go in September, I was gonna drive to Houston, but now she's bumped it back to December of 20, 2020. So that's a year away, guess what? I think I have a conflict. These people, they didn't live lives like we do. They didn't have, the only way they had a conflict with something was within the four or five days. But, but basically they did not plan their lives out months, weeks, years in advance because their lives were much more simpler than ours. And I'll, I'll give you an idea why. So, so, so really what, what you have is you have a system, a social system of the first century of Israel, much like it had been the previous 2,000 years or more. They were rural, they were agrarian, they were, uh, lived in clans and families, they lived in traditional sites, they did traditional work which had been passed down to them from generation to generation to generation. They had no theaters, they, had no, they didn't go on any journeys maybe in their entire life. The only journey they would ever take is back and forth to Jerusalem for the particular feast. Um, they worked all day, that is six o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. The only socialization they had was at the dinner table, which by the way, they really only had one big meal. They would take a little bread in the morning, they may take a little bread with a little meat or little beans or little lentils or whatever in the middle of the day, and they would eat only one big meal a day. That was your social center. Who was at the table is who you talked to. And so these, these meals were of vital importance. They, they had, um, uh, to have a great feast prepared like this would have been the highlight of their life. So that, that a prominent person would be inviting you to come, it certainly would be for the whole year, it may be some of the best food you eat in your entire life. And so you would have been waiting with bated breath for this. You'd have been waiting, but there would have been no time given to you because there's no way to have a time. They would have been told what it was, they would have told where it was, but they would have not been told when. It would have been completely acceptable to them, although not to you, because like I said, you're Western 21st century people. Uh, they would have been given a month, more or less, or, they would, or, or maybe a week, but here, here's the issues, and you can understand it because some of us are agrarian here, and we do understand crops and other things. Although, you know, I can buy a tomato any time of the year. I can buy fruit any time of the year. But back when, these days, they weren't having fruit shipped in from Chile and tomatoes shipped in from the Middle East like we are today. So when do you eat tomatoes? Only when they were ripe. And they were locally grown. When did you eat oranges? Only when they were ripe. They were locally grown. So there was only a certain time that you could have a feast like this. And when would it be? Whenever the crops come in. When did the crops come in? It's dependent upon the rains. And it's dependent upon the sun. And if you've got a lot of cloud cover this fall, well, last year we could have the feast in the middle of April because of, I don't know, the rains or because of more cold weather. We couldn't have it till the end of April. So there's a flux in there of two or three weeks, you see when these festivals will be held. And that would have been completely fine with you. You would have understood it. So this is a world without clocks. Life moves at a different pace. Uh, when does vegetables get ripe? When they get ripe. And we can't eat them before then. So you, you deal with it. And that's, again, they, they, didn't, they didn't expect anything else. Also, uh, they had to kill, clean, prepare, and cook the meat. You didn't go to HEB and throw it on the grill. The thing was wandering around, well, is it any, are we any closer to to, uh, to the meal, well, I noticed the crops are still in the field and the goat's still in the front yard, I guess not. <laughs> it's the way it was. You knew it was close though when you see them out there skinning the goat on the front porch. 
Now you know, uh-oh, honey, get the kids dressed. It may happen this afternoon. It may happen tomorrow. So it, was, it was very uh, contingent upon it. Again, you didn't have warmers back then. You didn't have uh, uh, ways to keep things at optimum temperature. So when it was ready was when it was ready. It wasn't, we'll be there in 20 minutes, or we'll be there. No, you, you knew it was getting really close because you knew when harvest was, and you, you could tell that they, you know, the goat wasn't in the front yard anymore, and so here we go. You know, maybe this afternoon, maybe this morning, it just depends on whenever things get cooked. And so you have been, again, uh, the second invitation would be to say, everybody get here, y'all come on in, ringing the dinner bell, the the, the metal triangle out on the front porch, come on down, because this is it. It, not a, it wouldn't have snuck up on you. It, it would, you would have known it. Um, again, today, without a time, without a day, you were unlikely to would have been there, but this is a different culture. Uh, this would have been a highlight, in some cases, of an entire lifetime for them. You did nothing else. You didn't have any, there wasn't television to watch, there was no, you know, you didn't have other options. It wasn't like, well, I can go to so-and-so's house, or we can go here, we can do this, we can do this, like we have today, and we just, you know, don't have no idea what we're supposed to do. You got to do this maybe once a year, maybe once in a lifetime, depending on your, your, your uh, social status. So verse 17, I said, they would have been waiting with bated breath to get this invitation. At the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those, come, everything's ready. And there would have been, like I said, this musical chairs type of convergence upon the place because it's, uh, you know, uh, these meals were very important culturally. And like I said, this was the height of their social, social situation. Also, he, Jesus tells us kind of the way things worked. He says, they, speaking of the Pharisees, they loved the place of honor at banquets. These old dudes in robes and, and uh, long beards were high tailing it to a place like that. Because not only do they get to eat good food, it's an opportunity for them to demonstrate publicly that they're better than you. They lived for it. Because of course, Rabbi so-and-so is gonna be sitting next to the host. Because, and he would be looking over all of you saying, yep, <laughs> just in case you forget. But he may only get one chance to do that in a year. And so for him to flaunt himself in front of you, he's not missing that. So again, understand, they would have not under any circumstances missed an opportunity like this. It wouldn't have happened. This is complete hyperbole. It's way outside of their culture. Uh, it would have been lavish it would, in nature and typically way more, way more than this Sabbath meal that Jesus was eating here for sure. So, so let's get to the excuses uh, down in verse 18. So after they get the come and get it call, uh, the most bizarre thing happens. The pre-invited, pre-accepting. So I go to your house, John and Tina, and I say, can you come? And we, you say, we plan to be alive at that time. We will definitely come. That's a solid thing. I include them in the list. We have a, a list back there of we're going to be eating and feeding kids. You know, you sign your name on there. We're just trying to prepare for some. But, you know, some miss, some can't, some get sick. We understand that. Uh, in this culture, they, would, you know, they, were, they were down to the leg of a lamb for each person. It would have been a massive expenditure. It would have been a huge preparation. It would have been months in advance, like I said. And so the, the, 
Typical, typically, they would have lived in great expectation. Will it be this week? Will it be today? Will it be tomorrow? It's getting so close. We're so excited. We can't wait. And they all, as it says there, notice, categorically, began to make excuses. This completely unheard of. Would have never happened. Could there have been an excuse? Yes, but it wouldn't have been any of these. This is at this point that people would have said, surely this is a joke. He's telling us a joke. I mean, this can be... Say, people don't do this. Surely it's a joke. It not going was unthinkable, given the social fabric, which they had none. Like I said, you worked all day, you ate, you went to bed, you woke up the next morning, and you did the same thing. You didn't go anywhere, you didn't do anything. So if you had some kind of social light like this, you absolutely would go. Only death would keep you from it. Not only was it what is against social fabric, it would have been a huge breach of, breach of social ethics not to go. It would have been an ethical slap in the face. To make an excuse, like I said, other than death or something completely unavoidable, which none of these things are, would have been a complete slap in the face because you'd known in advance. And, and by the way, so I invite John and Tina. Sorry, John and Tina. I invite John and Tina because I'm about to get mad at you, so hold on. So I invite John and Tina, and they come up with an excuse. But I know, I know their business. How, how do I know their business? Because we've been living in the same old hole forever. I know what they do. I know what they drive. I lived in a little town out in the middle of nowhere near Laredo. And I, I found myself after a couple of years living there, you see a new car driving in town, and I'm thinking, who is that? <laughs> they did not tell us that they were buying a new car. It's like an invader, you know, from outer space. What is that new truck? I can't believe that must be somebody. That, that can't be theirs, because we would have known that. That must be a visitor from out of town. And we would know three weeks in advance before we ever had a single visitor in church. Three weeks, my cousin's coming to town. I'm going to bring her to church. I don't know if she's saved or not. So anyway, just want to let you know that that's like here. We never know one day to the other who we're even sitting next to. Just small towns, you know. In a small town, I know their business. I'm probably related to them halfway. I know how they think. I know the deals that they make. We've worked together. We've, our kids, some of our kids are married to each other. Our in-laws, we have in-laws and outlaws. I know their business. I know whether they have a legitimate excuse or not. They don't have one. So, and by the way, not only do I know that, so does everyone else in our community know that. So if they don't come, guess what that says? That immediately says there's a breach in relationship between us and them. It's, it's, it's tantamount to a declaration of war. So I have agreed to come, which is a very public thing. Oh, John and Tina are going? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Well, of course they would go. Pastor Bill invited them, and of course they'd go. And then the day comes, and John and Tina, it's a, again a public thing because everybody knows in a small town. John and Tina say they're not coming. It's a refusal to come. What does that say immediately? We don't have to know the story. We know they got an end for Pastor Bill and his wife. And by the way, now Pastor Bill and his wife have an end for you too. So just don't even come around here anymore. <laughs> you didn't do that unless you were ready for war. You did not. You may not like them, but you wouldn't make any kind of public show of this unless it had just simply come down to nothing else. That's, so that's where this is. See, for us to call and say, hey, I can't make it, I have to wash my arms <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> it's just like, eh, we didn't want to eat with them anyway. No, in this culture, unless you were ready for a war, 
you did not refuse an invitation like this. It wasn't like I asked you yesterday and you really weren't sure because you hadn't talked to your wife yet, and then today you come and say, Pastor Bill, I can't because my wife, we already headed somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, no worry about it. We'll, eat, we'll do it again. That's our culture. Their culture, you would never get an invitation pretty much like that. You, maybe a Sabbath kind of invitation. But, but in their culture, this kind of thing would have been months in advance. You'd have been a total buildup. You would have known it's coming. You would have had every way to rearrange any kind of deal that you had to make. And so to make excuses at all, other than I'm on my deathbed, I'm probably going to die this afternoon. <laughs> Not acceptable. Again, to refuse was to declare that you wanted no friendship with this person permanently. You, could you, could you, did that happen? Yes. Was it rare? Very, very rare. Again, a small town, what do you do? It's not like I can move to the other sub suburbs on the outside of the loop somewhere and never see you again. None of that. I've got 500 people in this town. Either we get along or we kill each other. So hundreds would have been invited. And Jesus gives us only three examples of their excuses, and they're all extremely absurd. Here's excuse number one. I bought a piece of land. Happened all the time. Maybe every day. Why do they need to see it today? Like I said, it's as lame as me saying, it's the day that I wash my arms, I can't go. So you've invited me out on a date, and I say, I have to wash my arms on that day. What is that saying to you? I don't like you, and I would never go out with you. So to say that you bought a piece of land, and by the way, couldn't you have seen it yesterday? You know, deals are, you know, could, couldn't you have, what's, is it going to go away if we wait 24 hours? Is it not going to be there, John and Tina? Holy cow, I'm so upset with you. It's going to be there tomorrow? Completely absurd. Second one is just as, I bought five yoke of oxen. Again, what would you miss if you tried them out tomorrow? And why couldn't you have bought them yesterday? Or why couldn't we wait for a week? And by the way, if you have the capacity to buy five yoke of oxen, which is a total of 10 oxes, you're not going to be running those things. You're going to be paying someone to run those things. You've got slaves and servants and children to run these things. So you going out and testing them, you didn't do that. Completely absurd. Totally, utterly absurd. Again, what is Jesus trying to get at? He's trying to say, listen, the invitation is in front of you. It's him. And you're making these kind of excuses of why you can't make it to the, to the king's feast? How's he going to react to you? See, it's a declaration of war. To say that Jesus isn't good enough, that you're going to come by your own means, you're going to make some kind of deal, guess, guess what? God takes it very personally. Hell's going to be very hot for people who do not accept God's provision through his son, Jesus Christ. There's not gonna, he's not making exceptions for that. And you will have his eternal wrath to endure having trampled underfoot the precious blood of his son, Jesus. I'm telling you, don't mess with it. So here's the third one. It's maybe the most absurd because uh, it's a very male culture. And um, to, to, to go in front of a bunch of other men and say, I can't come because she slammed her sandal down and said, we ain't going. They would never have done that. And let me just say this. It was a very male-dominated culture until you got home. And when you got home, things were the same way they are right now. Okay? They kept a facade of men are smart and in charge because that was the cultural norms. But at home, the women were the same as they are today, just as smart, and they would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these old guys and win. 
So I'm not saying that she couldn't slam her sandal down and they wouldn't go. It's just that he would never say that, ever. Not under any circumstances. He would have come up with something else. For, so for him to effectively to say, you know, the old lady won't let me go. <laughs> no. And, and again, uh, how absurd that is. You know, he, he, he married her. You know, marriages were, were a, a drawn-out issue. They took all, they, like this banquet. This could have been a marriage. It doesn't say it. Could have been just like this. My, my daughter and son and son-in-law are getting married in the spring whenever the things come ripe and whenever we kill the goat, and we'll let you know, but we want you to come. It could have been the same thing. By the way, they would have never planned it on a double day because guess what? We live in a town of 500 people. Guess who's also coming to my banquet, and I'm getting married. You see? So I put it right over the top of yours, and how would you read that? I already put out the invitation, and you came out a week later saying, my invitation is going to be on the same day. Who am I competing for? The same group of people. So what is it? It's a total absurd slap in the face. Never going to come to my house again. Nor would I ever expect to go to yours, because you're demonstrating very clearly that you hate me. Again, if it, but back to this excuse. So anybody that henpecked would have never... Would have never made, he would have made up some other different excuse. I'm just telling you, he would have. So, so that's the exclusions. They begin to make excuses. And, and, and so verse 21, we get to these inclusions. Now he's going to start including people that would have been even more absurd than the excuses themselves to not go there. Angry would have been an understatement for this person. He would have been furious. He probably would have blown blown a gasket, would have stroked out. I mean, it would have been unimaginable how angry he would have been because you think about how much money and time and energy and efforts and how much things he's put into this and how much they've hoped for. And so, so now we have a table, we have, we're able to seat hundreds and we have, we're able to feed hundreds and when the dinner bell rings, no one comes. No one comes. They all, it says, make excuses. Again, this is it's just a hyperbolic thing that Jesus is trying to make a point with. It would have been an understatement how angry they would have been. So, so he invites the likely and they refuse. So what does he do? He invites the unlikely, which in this culture would have been Jews who were not of the same social status as he was. They would have been people who were either in poverty or they would have been in debt or they would have been ill or something would have kept them in a lower social status. And those people were not invited because, like I said, in this culture it was expected that you were able to be paid back. And, and, I, and there's a point to be made here also, these unlikelies, uh, Jesus surrounded himself with the same kind of people. In fact, the Pharisees had problems with who he hung out with. He hung out with very unlikely people of a lower social caste. Uh, tax collectors, fishermen, political activists, prostitutes, the sick and the afflicted. This was the people, they were the entourage that Jesus worked with. And so even though he had a status of a Pharisee in the sense of his teaching ability and everything, he, he was like, they were like, you don't do that. Why are you hanging out with these people? And then he gives them a lecture about how they should be invited to these people. And so out, way outside of their norms. So the, the story turns from one preposterous idea to another. And that is that this man would invite these people, these unlikely people in. The Jews prided themselves and being separate people. Again, I told you there's this caste system and it's based upon God's judgment. And so if you're in a poverty, poverty situation, uh, Gail and Gary, it's because God's judging you. If, if you, if you'd, again, it was very, very, um, uh, the health and wealth gospel was, very, was a very big thing. 
So because they're not healthy and wealthy means they're not, they're sinners. And so I'm going to separate myself from them because I'm making a ton of money, which means God's marking me as a good person. And marking them as bad people. Even I don't even know what they've done. I don't have to know because, you know, they're, they're, their investments have tanked, and so obviously they're sinners. Or Gail's gotten sick, and so obviously they're sinners because my wife and I are healthy because we're good people. We get the front row parking places and everything every time we go to Walmart and everything because we're just awesome. So it, it, it turned on that kind of theology. So these unlikelies would have not been invited because they were separated because they were considered sinners, um, and as opposed to the rich man who would not have been considered that way in this culture. Again, it turns this preposterous idea and, and bring them in, it says. They would have naturally agreed, not agreed to attend, even if you invited them. So I go to Gary and, 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 and Gail, and I say, listen, I want you to come eat. And they would have said, oh, we, you know, we say it the same thing too. Oh, we can't. What we really mean is it embarrasses us that you're inviting us, but we really are hungry and we really like a free meal anyway. So thanks a lot, we're coming anyway, but we'll say we can't. Oh, we can't, it's just too much, you shouldn't pay for us, you know, yada, yada, yada. We, you know. In our culture, we, we say that, but it's sort of just a, it's expected. In this culture, they was, when they said they can't, they mean they really can't. Because they understand the norms of the culture is if they come to my house and eat my food, they have to reciprocate. And they can't. You understand? They can't. Gary's falling on hard times financially, and all his money is going to Gail because she's sick. None of these things are true about y'all, are they not yet? <laughs> so they can't. No, we really can't come. We would, they, truly, they would love to. Like I said, this would be a social highlight of their whole life. This would have been incredibly good food, but they really can't. And so they have to bring them in, it says here. They bring them in. The poor would refuse because they know there's no way to pay this man back. And the guy says, I don't care. There's food. It's going to be eaten. Come. So all the poor are brought in, and there still are seats. So it tells you how big this, uh, this feast is. So the majority of the people in any given culture were poor. So he brings in three quarters of all the people, and he still has plenty of seats left over. That means that all, he, he already had, you, you, you hear betrayed in here, his plans to bring these people anyway. Because the, the rich people would have been a small one quarter of the, of the group. So he's planning to bring these guys in anyway, but, but at least initially, he, the likelies are invited first, and they refuse. So uh, all the poor are brought in, and then it says, so this would have been the humble Jewish populace. This would have been relatives. It would have been, you know, Jewish of Jewish blood. But, but where he goes next, so we go from the likelies who refuse to the unlikelies who are, have to be made to accept to the no ways no way would he invite these Gentiles, which is what, what is happening here. This group down in verse 23 uh, who were not Jewish. They're people who are locked outside the cities, only allowed to come in to carry on business on certain days. But, other, but they would have never been invited to any kind of Jewish meal because the Jews didn't eat with the Gentiles. Jews didn't corroborate with the Gentiles. You remember the story in the book of Acts where Peter goes and preaches to Cornelius. And he says, you know, for our culture, it's wrong for me to even come into your house much less to preach the gospel to you, to even have a meal with you. We just didn't do it. They just didn't. So, so the fact that he's inviting me into his own house, these people who were, like I said, no way in this culture, listen, for you to come in and on your own, at least, as a Gentile, and eat inside of a Jewish person's house would get you arrested. It truly would. So notice what it says there in verse 23 and following. Compel them, because why? You're going to have to drag them. What, you trying to get me arrested? 
I can't go in there. No, he says, no, I want you to come. I want you. It's going to be on me. If the authorities have a problem with it, they're going to have to talk to me about it. So, so, so we've gone from the likelies to the unlikelies to the no ways. And isn't this the great commission that Jesus has given us? He tells the disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in, in Acts he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. That's the likelies. In Samaria, unlikelies. There's not a big issue when they go and preach to the Samaritans, but they still have to have Peter and John go down and verify the salvation of these people because they're half-breeds and they only have a part of the Bible, and, but they have some, uh, much similarities compared to the rest of the Gentile world, at least, to the Jews. So you have the likelies in Jerusalem, Judea, the unlikelies in Samaria, but then it says, and to the uttermost parts, the no ways. God's going to save those people. They're not worth saving. They're going to get in trouble. They can't come before a holy God because they're not, like, they're not righteous people like us, the philosophy of the Jews. And so you have this exclusion here in verse 24, which is the finality of all of it. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my dinner. He, everything shifts from third person to first and second person. Jesus makes an application to this generation. The Jews were the special invited guests. The invitation was their Bible. They had it. They had seen it. The, the message and the, the, the process of God had been perfectly clear to them. They'd had it in their possession by the time of Christ. The, the Old Testament had been completed some 400 years, roughly. They had it. They, they, they should have been expecting it. They should have been waiting, it and, and waiting for it. And so that was the first course of invitation was the Scriptures and God's work through that nation, the nation of Israel. The, the second course and the final course, and there wasn't a third uh, uh, invitation, was, of course, the coming of His Son, Jesus. This is the final invitation. The dinner is ready. The Son is here. The Messiah is now walking in front of you. Come. Respond. Come, repent, as Jesus preached and as John preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's time. Tomorrow will be too late. Yesterday wasn't the time, but right now, because you're hearing this, as Jesus said to his uh, own people in his hometown in the synagogue, today these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, right now, make a decision. Tomorrow will be too late. The king is here, and he's offering himself, and so these excuses are, are, are classical excuses that you could put over, over the, you know, overarchingly over uh, the whole Jewish people. So the first two excuses have to do with material possessions. The Jews love their stuff. Part of the reason why they weren't coming to Christ is because they love their stuff. And the third excuse is because of relationship. They, you know, we, we can't humble ourselves. I'm, I'm an important man, and so for me to humble myself and call myself a sinner when I've held out this reputation of not being a sinner, well, I just can't do that. And so I prefer to take my pride and my stuff to the grave with me. And you can do that. That is your prerogative. That is an option. It's not a good one. But it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely an option. So, so if Jesus, for them, was the way to the banquet, and he is, if Jesus was the door to the banquet, and he is, then they were not going to have any of it. And so guess what God was going to do with them? Let them have their way. Uh, 
As, as Jesus says here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who, who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as when a hen gathers a brood under her wings and you would not have it. Now, the invitation has been in front of you and in front of you and in front of you and then uh, time is up. You've lost. You, you've missed it. And, and God's reaction, of course, uh, was the same as the rich man uh, who, who was refused. And that would be simply this, uh, permanent exclusion. These people would never, ever be invited back again. So it really, this life really is, it's it. You don't get another run at it in a second life, in purgatory or whatever. You don't get one. It's, it's, you're, you're, it's set in stone when you pass out of this life. Is there a chance for that person that you love to come to Christ? If they're breathing, yeah. If they're breathing, don't quit praying. Don't quit speaking, or maybe you've already said enough. You just need to keep, keep, keep living correctly in front of them. So, so there is a chance because they're alive, but I'm telling you the truth, it's hard and fast. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. It has nothing to do with what you do, or where you go to church, or how religious you are. Everything hinges on the Son. He is the invitation. He is the banquet. He is the life. He's the truth. He's everything. Eternal life is not a, is not a, um, a formula. It's not magic dust. It's a person, the person of the Son. You have to accept him. You have to have an encounter with, with the Son of God himself, accepting what he did for you on the cross, or, or else. So, so who will be at the banquet? Well, the illustration here is the unlikelies. I said heaven's going to be populated with unlikely people. And, and seemingly, un, indeed, unworthy and undeserving people, and, and the no way people. Uh, it's going to be populated with a tax collector who pounds his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's not going to be populated, or I should, hell, hell's going to be populated with those who, like the Pharisee, who said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's sad. And this is who Jesus is speaking to. And uh, at the table is going to be, in that supper, in that day, the remnant of the Jews who do humble themselves, the Gentiles who are willing to accept God's description of Sinners who need a savior, are you willing to accept that God's description of your life? You cannot be saved unless you're a sinner. You cannot be. Uh, and who's not going to be there? Well, the religious people aren't going to be. If that's all they've got. Again, God's not going to have a problem with us reading our Bible, coming to church, and, and yeah, it is better to come than not to come, and it is better to read your Bible than not to come, than not to read it. But, but again, where's our status? Our status is because of what Christ did for us. It's his works, not my works. And my works don't add anything to his salvation. And salvation is a reward that God's giving to him to give to me. It's not something I earn with any of the things that I do. So, so how should we take this parable? Very seriously, very personally. Unless you accept God's invitation to come through Christ, you won't go either. It was very tough. So, boy, was he cutting through some stuff here? Mm-hmm. Was he making friends and impressing people here? No, not at all. But there's a time where you, where you just can't. So we'll stop right there. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, Lord, we thank you for clear teaching. We thank you for 
sending your son Jesus for these amazing stories that he tells. And, and Lord, they, they need to hit hard on us as they did uh, for the Jews of that day. And um, these are offensive stories. They're offensive in that culture. They're offensive in our culture. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be afraid of the offensiveness of your scriptures. We would just simply not be offensive ourselves. We would tell them in love, uh, with tears, uh, how final this life is and the decisions we make here are. Thank you, God, for speaking to us. Thank you for these people. And pray, God, safety today, Lord, watching over us wherever you lead us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.